I'll be reading from Romans chapter 10. The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word of the Lord. He said to me in a raspy voice, no matter how dark the night, no matter how bitter the cold, the sun is going to rise. Have you ever been awake all night outside? Maybe you're up in a hunting blind, maybe you're working on a project, maybe you just woke up early and you decided to go outside. Before the sun comes up, when your eyes have to adjust and you can see the stars in the heavens. Well, there's this moment, and it's hard to define when it is. It just kind of sneaks up on you, and it grabs you. The the stars begin to fade, and the sky turns from black to a, a velvety purple. And all of a sudden, around you, you can see things that you couldn't see before. You can see the horizon as the sun begins to rise. Formless shapes become trees and buildings. And there's this moment can't tell you exactly when it is. But there's this moment when God seems especially near. Now, God has always been with you in the dark, and God will be with you uh, in the day. But, but before the sun comes up, before you see the brightness and the yellowing of the sky in the east, there's this moment. My favorite thing to do at sunrise, especially if you got up early and you're driving, you're trying to get somewhere fast, you're trying to get out of town to be traffic, and is not so much to look at the sun as it comes up, but look at the night as it fades in the west. Black to purple to blue. And on the other side, yellows, oranges, pinks, and red. It's this spectrum of color, this gradual lightning that happens. Artists would call that a gradient. And that's what's going to happen now. For the next 40 days, as we're together, we're going to move from Ash Wednesday to Easter. And so we're going to turn our eyes to the empty tomb in the same way that Jesus turned his eyes to Jerusalem. And every step he took after that moment was a step towards the cross. We're turning our eyes to Easter. And every moment from this moment forward, we're going to lean into the truths of the hope and the joy and the peace that comes from being together. And so we're going to walk through some ancient texts that come from Scripture using the season of Lent, the liturgical texts, to follow the rhythm of this Christian calendar. And I promise you, every year, every year that I've engaged in the season of Lent, whether it's something that I gave up because I didn't really need it, something I grabbed into because I wanted to lean into spiritual disciplines or the promise of God, or just every morning engaging in some practice like the cards that Zane mentioned, every year 
that I engage seriously in Lent, Easter is so much more. And I want it to be that for you. So this year, commit yourself to walking with us as we explore the gradient of Lent. Here's one of the things I learned this week. If the power was on, and i got to be honest with you, I took the power being on for granted, and I've taken it for granted most of my life. If the power of on, was on, that wasn't God's blessing. That was God's opportunity. I want to tell you what I saw this week. Lenin is credited with, with having said that in every society is three meals away from chaos. Or maybe you could say it in a modern way, we're three days without power or water from chaos. But this is what I saw. I saw people sharing guest bedrooms and living room floors because they knew that their power was an opportunity, not an expectation or a blessing. I saw people offering firewood, even filling up their trucks and traveling across town on icy streets so that others could have warmth. I saw people checking on neighbors and offering what little they had for someone else who had even less. I saw families playing board games by candlelight. And at the Grace Building, you may not have heard this story. At our, our Grace campus, the Almanzas, Darla, and Ben Thompson housed and fed eight families. Numerous folk made meals and brought supplies. Even Chick-fil-A brought some food for those families. And it is not a surprise to me at all that that Grace Building was a shelter in the storm. Neighbors helped neighbors repair water damage and burst pipes. And Natalie called me one morning and she said, hey, I was on the way to Target. I saw a guy and I picked him up. And I said, what did you just say? And she said, no, it's cool. And, and Jeremiah came and stayed with us for about six hours because his power was off. He was from Houston. The lightest thing, the warmest thing he brought there was just like kind of a light jacket. And, and he stayed with us for a, few for a few hours because we had heat and, and he didn't. And then he found another place to stay. We had extra room. We struggled to find someone to put there. It might have been that we have three boys under five, and they wake up every morning bright and early, bright and loud. But I think the real reason we couldn't find anybody to stay at our house is because everyone else was being so hospitable. I think the hardest part of this week for me was when I got a text from Atmos, our, our gas company, warning that supplies were low. And I thought to myself, no power, no water, no energy. All that was left in that moment was to trust God and take care of your neighbor. It wasn't just Highland that engaged in this work. Churches all over the city did what they could, offered their buildings, offered what resources they had. And this has been a long season of disruption and unprecedented precedents. We lost power and water, but we gained something more. We got our neighbors back. And we learned that, that as a church and as a city, we can do hard things together. Because no matter how dark the night, no matter how bitter the cold, the sun is going to rise. But the reality is for us that even though the temperatures have warmed up, 
you're still going to hold the stress of this past week in your body. It's still going to be present even though the, the, the worst has passed. And so I want to recommend that you do three things this week if you have a chance to do them. The first thing I want you to do is to go outside and get some sunshine and try to get some exercise. Go for a walk, uh, work out, do whatever you got to do. But get outside and get some exercise. Let your body feel what it feels like to be normal because your body is going to hold the stress of last week even though we're past. Move around. The second thing I want to suggest for you to do is to go laugh with friends. Now, it's best with friends, but you can do this by yourself. Find some reason to laugh loud. Watch some comedy. Uh, do whatever you Watch a three-year-old. Whatever you got to do. You're going to find a million reasons to laugh this week. But find a reason to laugh. And the third thing that you need to do this week is to find some time to pray to your father. You're going to need to talk out, whether that's writing out a journal or, 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 or going for a walk where you just talk to God or spending some time in that quiet place in those disciplines. Find some time to talk to God about what's happened. Because that stress that we've all experienced this past week, it's still there, even though the temperatures have warmed up. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are mindful of those that still do not have power in our state. We are mindful of those that will uh, fall asleep tonight in a cold place and haven't been warm for a week. Father, we're mindful of those that lost loved ones in our city and in our state. And we pray your comfort on them. And Father, we are grateful for the sunrise. I don't think I've ever been so grateful for a blue sky this week than I have in years. And so, Father, show us your grace this week and show us your mercy. Reveal in big and small ways your presence in our lives that we may rejoice and worship you. And, Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching that I might So we're in Romans chapter 10 today, and you really can't understand Romans chapter 10 unless you kind of understand the context of the book. So I'm going to spend just a minute talking about how chapter 10 fits into the big story of what Paul's trying to do in, in Romans. He's writing to a church that he's never been to, which is kind of unusual for, for Paul. Usually he's writing to a church that he planted, a church that he lived with, or, or a person like, like Jana mentioned that, that he has mentored for years. But he's writing to Rome because he's kind of hoping that the church in Rome will be able to sponsor him so that he can go on to preach in Spain. He wants to go to the end of the world. But the church in Rome is having a problem. And there's, my, there's a lot of ideas about what this is. But the one that I think is most credible is uh, the church was mostly Jewish when it was started in Rome. But the emperor kicked all the Jews out of the city for almost five years. And during that time, the Gentiles that were a part of that church, they kept growing. And more and more Gentiles were added to that church. And the, the flavor of the church changed, the way it functioned changed. You can imagine being gone from a church for five years and you come back and there's new people that you never met and they're singing different songs and it just feels kind of strange. And so when the Jewish people are allowed back in, there's some tension that's happening. And so Paul writes this letter to explain his theology of what God's doing in this world to help them learn how to love one another. 
It, it beg- it, Paul begins by saying, look, we're all sinful. We all know that those Gentile heathens are sinful in everything that they do. They do everything wrong. They worship gods. They do all sorts of strange and odd behaviors. Everybody knows that the Gentiles are sinful. But you Jews, you should know better. You have the same, you have the law, and you've had the prophets, and you've had the word of God, but you still do the same thing that the Jew that the non-Gentiles do. Everyone is sinful and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified clearly by his grace through Jesus Christ. For Paul, Jesus is the linchpin for understanding the story of the world. And all of this, what all of this does is it reveals God's righteousness. What God began in in Adam and Abraham and Moses to make this unique people a light to the world. Israel was always meant to be priests to the world, an example to everybody else about what does it mean to live in right relationship with God and with one another, a kingdom of priests. God brings to conclusion in Jesus. God's righteousness is revealed in what Adam was not able to do, Jesus can do. What the law reveals as sin, Jesus covers with blood. And we live into this new reality, we're in chapters 6, 7, and 8 now, by becoming new creation. We become the priests living in a different kind of relationship with God. And that kind of culminates in a huge way in Romans chapter 8. And if you've never seen it, uh, Josh Ross gave this amazing reading of Romans chapter 8 at Pepperdine a few years ago. You can YouTube it. In fact, if you want to... Uh, pause this sermon and do it right now. Actually, don't pause it because it's going to mess up the live stream. As soon as this is done, go listen to that sermon and and hear Romans chapter 8 spoken in an incredible poetic way. Both the people in Israel, both the people of Israel and Gentiles need each other. And Paul is devastated. Paul is devastated that Israel has rejected the Messiah. But he's also overjoyed that Gentiles see Jesus as the path to God. And and he he talks about this complex relationship between between Israel and the the Gentiles, everyone else. Israel has the gift to give to the world of the Messiah. And even though they rejected the Messiah, Israel created a bridge to, to, to shorten the gap between the rest of the world and to God. Because the Gentiles are going to be blessed from this moment in Jesus. But, Paul mentions, there's still hope because Paul knows the truth. Paul knows the truth that God can take a setback and broken things and work through them to turn it for good. And Paul has faith that the Gentiles grafted into, like a branch, grafted into a tree, will help bring new life to the tree. And so that the Gentiles, hearing the gospel, believing what it says, is going to bring new life back to Israel, both Jew and Gentile together, living into a new kingdom ethic that God always intended. And that brings us to our text today in Romans chapter 10. And Paul makes connections to three Old Testament texts, one in in Deuteronomy, the words of Moses, one in Isaiah, and one in Joel. From the book of Deuteronomy, he quotes, God is near. God has never left us nor abandoned us. 
And, and as I mentioned earlier, it was at that moment when I got that text from Atmos that said, conserve gas because we're running low on supplies. There was probably a moment in the last week where you had to depend on God to carry you through. You had to depend on God because there was nothing else left. All of the infrastructure and the, the systems that we relied on fell apart one by one by one, and you had to depend on God because it was the only thing left. Romans chapter 10 says, God is near. I grew up in Colorado, and we had blizzards from time to time where we were snowed in for a week at a time. My brothers and sisters and I were texting about that, and we were having all these memories, and, and I was reflecting, like, all of my memories of that time are amazing. It was, it was setting a fire in the chimney and, and sleeping in uh, sleeping bags in the living room together. That was such, so much fun, and making snow ice cream, and going out and playing in the snow, getting cold and wet, and coming back, and then drying off and warming up again, just enough time to go back again, and in and out, in and out. It was, it was an amazing time. There was no school, and there were times when we lost power, and there were times when it was cold in the house. But I was never afraid. Now, experiencing that as, as a parent, I, knew how, I never knew how nerve-wracking it must have been for my folks living through that time. And you have a choice of what to do with that anxiety when it happens. There's nothing wrong with anxiety or getting nervous or getting worried about what's going to happen for you and your family. I experienced that in a powerful way this week. But the choice that you do have is, are you going to trust God? Are you going to trust that he is near? From Isaiah, Paul quotes, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. And in, in the original context in Isaiah, the him is ambiguous, but, but Paul is clear. Those who put their trust in Jesus to save them, those who will not rely on their own righteousness, uh, but God's righteousness, not on their own strength or talent or tenacity, but in God's salvific power, God will not leave them hanging. They won't be put to shame. You know what it's like when you're left hanging, right? It looks something like this. Okay, so look, look at her face. What emotion is she experiencing right now? She is feeling embarrassment and shame. And we've all been there. We've all put up our hands for a high five, and you just left it out there because the other person didn't connect, and that just happens. And what you feel in that moment, especially if you're in public or caught on camera, is shame. I don't care if you're Tom Brady. That happens to everyone. You will never reach out to God and fail to connect. And God will never put you to shame. God will never tell you you don't measure up. That is not a voice from God. That is a voice from the evil one. God will never tell you you are not good enough, that you can't be accepted, that your most intimate self is not worthy. You may feel that way at times. And the best I can imagine is you're going to feel that way as long as you're breathing. There's going to be some moment in your week or in your day where you experience shame as long as you're breathing, but that is not who God says you are. 
God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might be grafted into his righteousness. Everyone is welcome into the kingdom of God. That's the story that Paul is trying to tell us, that what God began at the beginning with Adam culminates in Jesus, and it is for everyone. And that's the striking nature of this text when we think about what, when Paul quotes Joel. And he's diving deep into what Israel already knew. One of the most amazing things about the book of Joel is the book of Joel quotes like eight other books in the Old Testament. Joel knows scripture and he knows calamity. He knows the context of Israel. And in the original context, when, 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 uh, when Joel writes his letter, the day of the Lord is this terrifying moment. Joel is the first two chapters are about this day of the Lord. It's this coming of this moment of calamity. And it's, and it's, it's, it's going to be like the same judgment that God poured out on, on Egypt in Exodus when the plagues came. It's going to be poured out in Israel. But, Joel says, our God is slow to anger, quick to offer mercy and compassion. He's quoting Exodus. In the original context, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be saved from this oncoming disaster and offered this blessing instead. That God's presence will dwell in our hearts. God will be near the God who accepts us and will not put us to shame. And God's restoration will not only heal our hearts, but heal our land. At the end of Joel, he imagines this new people in this new creation, this new Eden. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we're going to turn our hearts and our minds to Easter. We're going to prepare space in our lives. Do the kind of spring cleaning we need to do. Take out the things that we really don't need anymore. Put in new practices that ought to belong. And we look forward to what God is going to do. Because what God begins in the empty tomb, fulfills in our lives. And we look forward to that moment when he comes again. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. I love you, church.